Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled, The Organized Church. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've all heard someone say it. Either it's, I don't like the organized church, or I don't believe in the organized church. You know, I often smile when I hear that. You know, does the person who says it mean they prefer a disorganized church? And furthermore, the minute you tell everyone what time and where you're going to meet, by definition, you're organized. And that's unless you happen to meet by chance in which, you know, you have an impromptu prayer service. But we're all organized to a greater or lesser degree. Now, what I really suspect people are saying when they say they don't like the organized church is they don't like the church. They prefer a private spirituality. Well, okay, but that's fine. But organized churches are not the problem. And here's what I also know. The larger the church, the greater is the need for organization. You know, when I pastored a large church, we organized the front welcome desk to make sure that all those who were there were able to answer questions about the church and also direct people into those ministries that would reach out to different people. We never took for granted that people would just find their way into the church somehow. We thought we needed systems in place to ensure that we minimize the amount of people who remained anonymous. You know, I'd frequently say something like this. You know, if you're new here today or if you've been attending for some time and still haven't found your way in to connect, or if you're wondering, how do I make this my church home? Let me strongly urge you today, before you leave, stop at the welcome table at the back. Tell someone I'm new, or I want to know how I can get involved. And and the folks at the desk will help you to take first steps of bringing you into the center of this place. Now, in order to pull that off, it took considerable organization. And of course, that was just the beginning of all our organizational structures. Now, if you're in a small church, it requires a great deal less organization. Often the connections that are made are more organic and less organized. You know, someone sees someone they haven't met before and they wander over and they say, hi, my name is Jim and I don't think we've met before. And if you're new, let me be the first person to welcome you here. Now, if there are any questions you might have, love to help. You see, it takes less organization, and it's more a matter of simply getting your members to be tuned in to anyone that's new. So here's a basic rule. The larger the church becomes, the more organizational structures it needs. If those structures aren't developed, well, the church simply settles back down to its previous size and then never grows again. We started a new series in Acts 6 to 12, and it's about getting beyond Jerusalem. You know, I've started by saying that Jesus never wanted his followers to be a local phenomenon. They needed to get the good news to Judea and to Samaria and then to the rest of the world, and this is crucial. It was so valuable that the church of Jesus had a strong and effective home base. The gospel had to be taught and people needed to be discipled in the faith. There needed to be an expectation of evangelism and reaching out in Jerusalem. And so the first five chapters of Acts is the story of the birth of the church and of the Jesus movement that learned its mission. The 12 apostles are leaders. The Holy Spirit has descended and is empowering the people of God. Men and women are repenting of their sins and they're coming to Christ. There's a backlash of persecution from the Jewish religious establishment, but the church is growing rapidly. And so for this reason, Acts chapter 6 shouldn't surprise us. The church needs to be organized more. 
And what we're going to find, that the organizational structures that were developed have a great deal to say about how the church must still be organized to this day. So let's begin by reading the text, Acts 6, 1-7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice that our account begins with an important description. The disciples were increasing in number. You know, it must have been joyous to see so many new believers becoming obedient to Christ. And of course, It hadn't been without its problems. The authorities noticed and the gloves were off. Peter and John had already been before the Sanhedrin. And then the incident with Ananias and Sapphira reminded the church they couldn't just concentrate on growth. Well, they needed to concentrate on holiness and and obedience to Christ. But the church was growing. You know, it's hard to know how large it actually was at this point. Luke tells us way back at Acts 4, verse 4, that the number of men at that point was 5,000. Of course, if you count the women and the children, of course, it's a great deal larger. And then go forward one chapter to Acts 5, 14, where Luke says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so by chapter 5, the church is much larger than it was in chapter 4. And it's hard to know with certainty how large the city of Jerusalem was during that time, but I think it's fair to say that the Jerusalem church was the most significant thing happening in the city. Uh, The church was so large that it must have seemed everywhere present and was taking the city of Jerusalem by storm. In fact, the first Christian church in history is what today we call a megachurch. Yeah, that's right. Megachurches are not a modern invention, no matter what others tell you. They were a part of our history from the very beginning. But we notice that growth is not without its challenges. Luke tells us that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, and let's explain that. See, when the day of Pentecost came, that is, when the Holy Spirit fell on the church, Luke then told us that Peter got up to preach to the crowd, and that in the crowd there were Parthians and Medes and residents of Egypt, says Luke, and there were also people from Macedonia and Greece. I mean, these people would all have been Jews. They would have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and when the Holy Spirit fell, and then when there were tongues of fire that rested on the original 120, And then when the followers of Jesus started speaking in the languages of the nations from where these Jews had come, proclaiming the mighty acts of God, I mean, everyone knew something was underfoot. Then Peter got up to preach, and 3,000 are saved on that day. Those people, some of whom were Jews from surrounding nations where they lived, well, they never went home. You know, they stayed put. They became a part of the church. That's why in the early days, they had everything in common. I mean, that's the only way in which they could keep those foreign Jews remaining in Jerusalem and becoming a part of the early church. But there's another factor we need also to consider. 
See, many devout Jews, no matter where they lived, thought of retiring in Jerusalem. They thought of spending the rest of their days living in the holy city. And some of them didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And all that being said, the first Christian church was made up of Jews for whom neither Aramaic or Hebrew was their first language. A great many were far more comfortable in Greek. And furthermore, when they heard the Bible or the First Testament being explained, they would have heard it not from the Hebrew Bible, but from what we now call the Septuagint. Well, what's the Septuagint? Well, there had been many Jews in Egypt, in Alexandria. They no longer spoke Hebrew, and they demanded a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That Greek translation of the Old Testament, that was called the Septuagint, and it became the Bible of the Greek-speaking Jews that were scattered all over the known world. So I hope you see that even though they were Jews, they had become a very unique culture, and they were different from the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. But now they'd all become one community together. Now, the second thing we notice is that the church from its beginning had a practice of caring for the poor. And from this passage, we can see that they made a practice of ensuring that all the widows were being cared for. But given the you know, growing size of the church and, and the growing task of caring for all the poor widows, well, it must have become an overwhelming task. And somehow, and Luke doesn't tell us how, but the Hellenists, that is, those widows whose first language was Greek, well, they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They were going without, and they began to complain, and so did others who were related to them. Clearly, the church needed to become organized. We want to thank you for your faithful prayers and generous gifts that help ensure that solid Bible teaching is available around the world. Because of your generosity, all of our international Bible teaching efforts and partnerships happen, including the distribution of Dr. John's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, being made available in 11 key languages distributed across India. It's such a privilege to work in partnership with you and ministry friends like Back to the Bible India and Back to the Bible Sri Lanka. As we work together, Bible resources are being made available around the world. And a special thank you for your gifts, the gifts you sent during our international focus in March. And may I encourage you to continue to support these international partnerships throughout the year, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. To learn more or to offer a gift in support of international ministries, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked because of racism. Your language is a very natural barrier, as is culture. No doubt the Hebraic widows were a larger group, and no doubt the distribution of food was easier among those for whom Jerusalem had been their lifelong home. You know, there are all sorts of legitimate reasons why this overlooking of the Greek-speaking widows might have happened. That doesn't change the fact that these widows were going without the basic necessities of life. And this neglect of their needs, if it had been allowed to fester, well, it might well have become the reason for rancor and the lack of unity in the church. 
Love meant that something had to be done. Now, remember, I said that the larger a church becomes, the more organization is required. See, in a small church, the overlooked needs of some can easily be identified, but in a large church, those matters can remain unseen. If the church is to be what Christ wants it to be, they will need to develop structures that make sure that many are not overlooked. Now, to many, this task is supposed to fall on the pastors, and we've all seen that, haven't we? You know, the pastor of a church is supposed to preach on Sundays and visit the sick and lead some kind of a midweek group and then organize major events like Christmas and Easter and conduct weddings and funerals and counsel the needy and help organize a youth program and also help organize, you know, volunteers for Sunday school and attend board meetings and keep track of the budget and make sure that he's evangelizing his community and neighbors. And then finally, he's supposed to put together an attractive web page as well. I mean, it wouldn't hurt if he had some building skills as well to, you know, to oversee any problems in the physical plant where the church is meeting. You know, whenever one finds a model of organization, roughly like the one I've just described, I mean, one thing's clear. The church can and will grow only as large as the pastor has capacity. You know, in essence, it grows to the length of his arms. As many people as he can wrap his arms around, that's who belongs. In churches like that, people often boast that in their church, I mean, everyone gets to know their pastor. Isn't that great? And of course, they could all get to know one another. The fast-growing megachurch in Jerusalem had a very different solution to this problem. Verse 2 says that the 12, and that refers to the 11 apostles Jesus had chosen along with Matthias, who you remember was chosen shortly after, that all 12 of them summoned the full number of the disciples. That is, they summoned the whole church congregation for a meeting. You might read that and pass over it too quickly. How large was the church now? Apparently quite large. Now, when Luke tells us this, I mean, what's he telling us? Is he saying everyone was there? Of course, we can't know if everyone was there. I assume they weren't. But a great number of the church gathered. No doubt they'd all heard of the problem. And no doubt the leadership of the church was not interested in hiding from the church what was going on. And no doubt the people trusted their leaders. So this was in no way a rancorous meeting. Rather, it was informational, presenting of a plan, one that everyone needed to know about. And I need to stop here and say something about church congregational meetings. It's simply not true that everyone should speak to everything until there's confusion and division and creating problems. Rather, when issues arise, good churches with good leaders meet to solve problems, not to blame others for problems. Notice next that the very next thing the apostle said is that it would not be right to allow anything at all to cut into the preaching of the word and to the duty of remaining in prayer. So we get the impression that with the church being the size that it was, all 12 apostles were actively involved in various settings, making sure that new believers understood the basics of the Christian faith. That is, who is Jesus? Why did he die on the cross? What's the meaning of the resurrection? How does one live in faith? What's the lifestyle that Jesus wants all his people to observe? No doubt also much care would have been taken to explain to these Jewish believers what Jesus did and taught, and also how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. See, these matters were essential to the early church, and they're essential to us today. You know, I've long argued that everyone who teaches the Word of God should be very well trained for the task. 
A teacher of the word must have demonstrated mastery over the text of scripture, able to articulate biblical doctrines, answer very real questions that believers have. But that's not enough. There must be a teaching not based on the felt needs of people, but based on the text of scripture, so that in preaching and in teaching, All of God's people become experts in Christian doctrine. They become experts in knowing how to understand their Bible, experts in Jesus, in his life, and especially in his gospel. But that's not all the apostles had to do. They said, we must also give ourselves to prayer. No doubt the apostles prayed over their sermons. They prayed over the spiritual well-being of their people. They prayed for strength as the persecution was growing in the city. They prayed for wisdom. They prayed for the unity of the church. They prayed knowing that they were in spiritual warfare. They prayed because they had seen Jesus pray. And they knew it was essential to their own lives as well as the mission of the church. See, the important point here must not be missed. It would have been a tragedy that stalled the growth of the early church if the apostles became involved in the matter of the care of widows. Notice the apostles were not saying that the care of widows wasn't important. It clearly was. After all, they no doubt also prayed about the plight of so many poverty-stricken widows that were now a part of their church. Notice carefully how the problem is solved. The apostles call a church congregational meeting, and notice the instructions. First, you, the church, as a whole, are given a task. You, not we, will pick seven men to give themselves to the ministry of widows. However, before you run off and just do a popularity contest, we're going to give you the criterion of what you are to look for. Notice the men they select must meet three criteria. The first is that they are to be men with a good reputation. Don't you dare pick men who are divisive in the community, but pick men that are well thought of by all. The selection of these men must be the cause of rejoicing, not of creating division. Second, they must be men who are filled with the Spirit. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what they looked for in Spirit-filled men, but You know, later when we go to Galatians 5, we know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, so forth. They must have been men filled with that. Third, they must have been men full of wisdom. You know, wisdom is the faculty that knows how to choose the good and avoid the bad. Wise people make decisions by considering the final outcome and by whether their decisions will glorify God and bring harmony to the church. Now, we notice that the job description that's given here, along with the qualifications that are required to look so much like what later became the office of a deacon. You know, the word deacon is a Greek word. It simply means a servant. Deacons care for the poor. They oversee the distribution of food. Deacons oversee budgets. Deacons make sure that the communion elements are purchased. Deacons make rounds and they visit people who are in trouble or who are suffering. Did you know that in the generation after the apostolic era, Christian deacons were often noted for their amazing work for taking care of abandoned and unwanted children. Deacons serve by taking care of the real needs of people. Please notice that the apostles could have picked the seven men themselves, but they didn't. They entrusted that to the church as a whole. The apostles thought it was important for God's people to actively be involved in selecting men to lead in this area. Now, of course, we don't know how the selection process actually worked. I mean, did they vote for them or exactly how did they do it? Well, wisely enough, Luke doesn't tell us. 
So which says to me that the local church can use any number of means to make the selection. But notice that after they had been picked, that according to verse 6, they were brought before the apostles who laid their hands on them and commissioned them. So we assume that the people also sought to know if the apostles were in agreement with the choice that they had made, and they were. And what also amazes me that the seven men selected all have Greek names. All seven came from the Greek-speaking population. So why was that? It seems the church wanted to ensure that these men were known to care for the Greek population. Well, what does all that tell us about church organization? For one, it's not organization for organization's sake. Rather, it's organization so that the ministry of the church will remain vibrant. The gospel will continue to go out. Evangelism will carry on unhindered. Discipleship will carry on. People's needs will be noticed. Prayer will be uninterrupted. The poor and the needy will be dealt with and cared for in the name of Jesus. Someone is organizing to notice who's got a need and who might be in danger of falling between the cracks. You know, if there's a message for the local church, it's this. Don't you give the pastor the role of everything. It will hinder what God has called his people to do. Organize, organize in such a way that the cause of Christ goes forward. Verse 7 simply says that the church grew like gangbusters. The word was proclaimed and more and more people became obedient to the faith. Some of them were even priests. John, I think you've given us a challenging message today for the church. Let me ask you this, though. How do we organize ourselves better so that evangelism, missions, and the goal of the church is actually more effective? Yeah, I I think we shouldn't think to ourselves, and thanks for asking the question, Ben, but I think we shouldn't think it's just going to happen organically or naturally. It's not going to. We have to actually organize ourselves. I'm going to say that, you know, every church should be so organized that there are people who are prepared, either at a welcome center or something like that, to share with those who are new, those who are seeking, should be aware of how to share the gospel, and also to be able to share what are the avenues of getting involved and getting to the center. I I think that every single church should have some kind of a course in which they introduce people to the gospel. And so, you know, there should be people roaming in every single, you know, foyer of a church that is, you know, ready to do that. And when that's not being organized in that fashion, well, you know, that's why we're actually having people come and go without even realizing that they were there for the gospel. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Easter is a pivotal time in the life of a Christian. The foundation of our faith relies on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada has a two-part video series, an Easter series, available on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel, as well as backtothebible.ca. Special musical guests Brian Dirksen and Stephanie Radikop will provide inspirational music, and you'll be refreshed and strengthened in your walk with Jesus under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. So remember, join us for an Easter series right here on backtothebiblecanada.ca 
or join us on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.